You're listening to Castle Rock First United Methodist Church's Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Castle Rock FUMC, you can go online at fumccr.org. Thank you and have a good day. It is a joy to be with you this morning, friends. And I call you friends despite not having met most of you because I believe in the transitive property of friendship. I am friends with Matt and he is friends with you and that makes us friends. It is such a joy to be here today. Matt and I served as pastors in Oklahoma. I feel like he was always dreaming and scheming up something new and creative. And so I got to partner with him in a lot of fun and creative ideas. We played softball together. We even were comrades in getting our MBA together. So it's such a joy and feels like working of the Holy Spirit that as we both relocated out to Colorado, we live about 30 minutes from each other. My husband and I and our son Griffin, they were at the earlier service. Uh, We live in Littleton, closer to the the Roxborough area. And I am not pastoring uh, a church right this moment. I have a little bit of a change in my call. I'm now a management consultant with a firm that works with engineers and architects and construction firms. So Chuck mentioned that I missed the the joke in the first service that I used to work for one carpenter and now I work for many carpenters. So there's a lot of crossover and there really is a lot of crossover in organizational expertise. How do we help firms to be most effective? How do we lead and inspire? And usually there's a lot of engineers in churches too. So I feel like there's a lot of crossover. But I'm happy to keep my hand in preaching and have this opportunity to share the word with you today. Our scripture this morning, our first verse comes from Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Would you stand as you are able for our gospel reading? This comes from Mark 1, verses 4 through 11. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descended like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. 
Would you pray with me? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It felt like the spirit was moving again when Matt asked me to preach this Sunday because this passage of Jesus's baptism is one of my favorites. That call of beloved is so important to me that it's actually my first tattoo that I got. I'm happy to show after service as well. These are words that literally I had written on my body. They are that important to me. And I think you'll see why as we dig into this passage. You see, Jesus' baptism is right at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. It's to show the importance. Mark is giving this emphasis on how important this part is. And the other Gospels begin in different places. They go a little further back. Matthew starts with the begats, the ancestry of Jesus. Luke has the foretelling of Jesus and John's baptism. And John goes all the way back to the very, very beginning. So here in Mark, it can kind of feel like we're dropped on a moving treadmill. That here is grown adult Jesus showing up with John. Feels like we're dropped right in the middle of the action. But it's to show that importance of this, this section. This is what Mark feels is the most important. We hear John is calling people to repent and to be baptized. And if we're honest, he sounds like a weird dude. He sounds really odd. He's got this camel hair wardrobe, and he's eating bugs. But these details give us more layers to understand how he fits into the story of God's people. You see, hearing that detail about his wardrobe paints him as a second Elijah. His prophecies come from the, God, from the book of Isaiah. And he's prophesying and calling to the people in the wilderness, which harkens back to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. He's even baptizing in the River Jordan, which is what separated the wilderness from the land of milk and honey for the Israelites. He's rooted in the rest of God's story. He's this radical living on the edge of God's reign, inviting others to join him there. This is where Jesus asked John to be baptized. And most of the Gospels, all of the Gospels, wrestle with this, that Jesus had more authority, so him asking John to baptize him, they feel a little uncomfortable. Mark seems to have less discomfort with it, and that's what goes ahead and happens. John baptizes Jesus, and it's in that moment that we hear God declare, this is my son, the beloved. This passage can ask, make us ask some big questions. Why was Jesus baptized? Other people coming to be baptized were sinners. If Jesus was sinless, what did he have to repent of? So it's a little bit different for Jesus. He wasn't coming to repent of something. Rather, he was coming to stand in solidarity with the sinners that he came to save. I heard a story about a seminary student who was going through clinical pastoral education, or CPE. It usually takes place in a hospital, and it gives a really great education for chaplains or those seeking other roles in ministry. And in her group was a seminary professor. And the student took a second. She asked, why are you here? You've already done this. You know these things. Why are you in this group as well? And the professor said, I require my students to do it. 
So why would I not do this as well? This was an act of solidarity. The professor was in solidarity with her students, just as Jesus was coming to stand in solidarity with those whom he came to save. Jesus's baptism marks the beginning of his ministry, and more really. The theologian Karl Barth says that this moment is a summary of the whole gospel, that no longer is God set apart in heavens, but rather here, dwelling with all of us. This is the beginning of the eschatological reign of God. And again, this is rooted in what God has already done. It's not that God woke up one morning and said, everything I've already done was in vain. No, this is a coming of fruition of all of God's work. Jesus is anchored in the story of what has been done before. God's creative work in creation, bringing forth light and life out of nothing. God's liberating work, bringing the Israelites out of bondage and continuing to call through the prophets. But this is the beginning of Jesus's earthly ministry and the start of his career, as it were, as a son of God. But this isn't a new identity. He's not adopted in this moment, as some of those in the early church wrestled with. Rather, it's a manifesting of his identity. It's really showing exactly who he was, always called the Son of God. You see, his ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is really the catalyst for this moment as well, for his ministry to begin. Just like a chemical reaction, you can often have different chemicals here, but you need that catalyst to spark the reaction, to get it going. In the same way, the Spirit is what tipped things into action to put Jesus's ministry into action. Now, Jesus was declared Son of God at his baptism, and he was also declared Son of God at his crucifixion. And Mark is using the entire journey of the gospel to show us what it means to be the Son of God, which is obedient suffering. Jesus would serve and offer himself over and over, even when it meant rejection, even when it meant rejection to the nth degree. The Son of God also has a humble authority, which might sound oxymoronic at first, but it's really not. Think about the best leaders that you know, those that wear the authority best. They don't have to tell you they're in charge. You just know it. They're the people in the room that everyone looks to, that they have eyes on their reaction. This humble authority is what's lived out in the rest of the gospel. Now, this passage also demonstrates how the Holy Spirit interacts as well. I think often we have this image of a dove delicately descending very peacefully from the heavens, very sweet. But that doesn't really fit with that word that's used of the heavens. The word is torn. It sounds a lot more uh, active, maybe almost violent. And so maybe instead of a delicately descending bird, something more like a dive bombing Holy Spirit is appropriate, which birds do, especially when protecting their young. It also makes me think of the Holy Spirit that we read of in Genesis, the spirit hovering over the waters of creation, brooding, some translations say, ready to bring forth new life. Maybe we like to think of this delicate image because we like to pretty up the act activity of the Holy Spirit. 
that it's a lot easier to think that it's delicate and comfortable for us. But we forget that the Holy Spirit can be disruptive when it invades our lives. It's unexpected. Scott Erickson has a devotion in his book, Honest Advent. I know, one season late, but all the same, it fits for today. Where he talks about when Mary was pregnant, she probably experienced morning sickness. Overcome by the fullness of the Holy Spirit and bearing the Son of God, she was probably ill. She probably had this unease in that experience. And I think that speaks to how oftentimes when the Holy Spirit stretches and grows us and brings forth something new, it's uncomfortable. We don't like it, but it's so true. For myself, trusting where the Holy Spirit leads is uncomfortable. I think we often hear narratives of someone going from business into vocational ministry and the sacrifices that that entailed. Maybe we don't hear as much about someone going from vocational ministry into business. So maybe it could sound like, oh, that's an easier leap for you to make. But really, it took a lot of faith for me to do so. Because I heard my call to ministry when I was 15. Being a pastor, I really considered part of my core identity. I prided myself on it. And if I'm honest, I was good at it. No one was pushing me out of this role. It would have been so easy for me to ignore the Holy Spirit's disruptions and say, no, no, I know what's best. I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to be a pastor. Look, I'm serving God's people. Look at all this that I'm doing. It would have been so easy to carry on and not listen and not be obedient and not follow the disruption of the Holy Spirit. Now, with the Holy Spirit descending and tearing the heavens, that word torn really stuck out to me in preparation and study for this sermon. The word in Greek is schizo, where our words like schizophrenia come from, a torn mind or schism, something that we've experienced in the United Methodist Church recently, something that's painful. But I wonder if there are tears that can be life-giving. I think of when a mother gives birth a woman's body literally breaks and tears to bring forth the baby, to bring forth new life. I think in this passage, we see how God is doing something new, breaking into our world in a disruptive way, but it brings forth something new. That's when we hear these words, my son, my beloved, with you, I am well pleased. It's those words that are said over each of us in our baptisms. My child, I love you. I find happiness in you. I find it's very easy to forget this. It's a transformational moment that seems almost too big to hold. And even if you were baptized as an infant like me, so you don't remember it yourself, even the concept is so big, it's hard to hold on to. We have to be reminded we're forgetful people. It can seem like almost a Sisyphusian task that never ends, that we continue to remember, but we forget over and over. That's why I had it put permanently on my arm to remind myself that I can look down and see it, see that I am called beloved. It's important to have that reminder of that is the most important thing ever said of me, 
That is the core of my identity. It can be so easy to stake our identities elsewhere. I love the movie that came out this summer, Barbie. And in it, I especially loved Ryan Gosling. I said Ryan Reynolds in the first service. and Someone caught me. It's Ryan Gosling and his portrayal of Ken. And you see, Ken has a hard time remembering or understanding where his identity is. What makes him Ken? Is it who he dates, what he wears, what he does, that he has a very cool mojo dojo casa house? What is it? What makes him Ken? And eventually, Barbie says, Ken, maybe it's not all these things that make you you. Maybe you're enough, just as you are. Maybe you're enough. Friends, how much more true is that for us when the creator of the universe says of us, you are enough, you are loved, you are worthy, you are beloved. This is the core of our identity that we are called beloved. For me, it's hard to not get distracted with other titles, other titles that are good. I want to be a good wife and mom and leader and friend. But if I start to think that succeeding at those things is what makes me worthy or what earns me grace, I get distracted. It's hard to believe that really I'm worthy and enough just for who I am. But that's so true. That's what it is. This passage declares that this belovedness is freely given. Jesus is called beloved before he teaches, before he heals, before he has crowds following him. He's called beloved just for him. And the same is true for us. So friends, if we are looking at how do we become the people of God, how are we living into this and becoming, we start here. This is the beginning. Like Jesus, we are rooted in this story. We are baptized into Christ's baptism, and so we take up the mantle of his mission. One commentator said we are blessed with his mission and also stuck with it. Stuck with it because declaring the reign of God is a challenge. It is a hefty mantle to lift up. Just flip to the end of Mark, and you'll see how it went for Jesus. It is not easy. Are we willing to take up this mantle, even knowing the cost? Are we willing to build communities where all live an abundant life? Are we willing to work for justice, where all live in right relationship? The reign of God has been marked by liberation since the beginning. Are we willing to work for that liberation as well? It's daunting because you don't need me to remind you that it's rough out there. It's a hard world. It is broken and hurting. We see violence near and far. When we see such disruption and what feels like chaos oftentimes, it's daunting to work for peace, shalom, wholeness. But friends like Christ, we don't do this by our own power. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do this work. We do not do this alone. So how might, in remembering your baptism, how might you be directed to listen to the Holy Spirit? What new thing is the Holy Spirit bringing about in you? Is it still in that disruptive stage that where it feels uneasy and uncomfortable? 
Is it just a nudge that you would really like to ignore or resist? I think instead of New Year's resolutions like we might often see in media, instead, what if we commit in 2024 to listening to that disruptive voice of the Holy Spirit that's doing a new thing? Now, at the churches that I served in Oklahoma, we ended up with a tradition of celebrating baptisms with confetti cannons. Because I don't think anything really expresses the joy of a baptism more than a confetti cannon. Does this make a mess? Absolutely. Did I accidentally use an outdoor biodegradable confetti cannon inside once and it all crumbled into tiny, tiny pieces? Yes. Yes, I did that. Did I have to sweep up confetti before a funeral the next day? Absolutely, but it's worth it. They are so much joy. We had them at my son's baptism, and one Sunday we had a few kiddos getting baptized, and instead of the more traditional sprinkling, they wanted to be immersed. So we had the big stock tank, and I learned that a lot of confetti and a lot of water can leave some stains. So my beautiful white uh, stole that my mom made me for ordination has a few little marks of color on it, a little red and blue and green here and there. But I really love it because I feel like that's the perfect illustration for baptism. It's disruptive. Confetti cannons are not quiet, and they leave a mark. Those kiddos were marked and claimed by God, and I was marked. I was impacted by their baptisms as well. Friends, in baptism, God breaks into our lives and claims us. And so we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to take up the mission of Jesus and declare the reign of God and share God's love. Let it be so, now and always. Amen.